Kia ora, and welcome back to Stranger at Home. My name is Alex. I'm Han. And this is the show that asks the question, what does it mean to be a Kiwi? So um, this week, we've got a guest. Would you like to introduce our guest? I feel like that's your job now. Hi, Dougal. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on the show. My name is Dougal McNeil, uh, and I'm a lecturer in the English program at Victoria and the president of the Vic branch of the Tertiary Education Union. Um, so yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? So like, what's your background? What brought you to Victoria University and all that? I know it's probably quite a long story, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, a long story, but time passes really quickly and in strange ways, I guess. I've been teaching at Victoria for 10 years now. Uh-huh. So I started here in 2011 on a fixed term contract and then was lucky enough to get a permanent job from there. So I've got about a decade's connection here as a staff member, but then a long time ago, um, probably what would it be, almost 20 years ago, I came here for honours. Wow. And to do my master's. So I've got I've been a student at Victoria as well as a staff member. Those would be the two main connections that I have. And I've been living in Wellington off and on for yeah, about twenty years with time away in different places. But yeah, that's my connection. Where were you cool. before um Victoria Victoria Uni? Well, I was born in Dunedin. I grew up in Dunedin and did my undergraduate study at the University of Otago. Uh-huh. And then, like a lot of people from Dunedin moved to Wellington. It was about twenty, <laughs> yeah. twenty-one, uh, and studied here. And then I went and did my PhD in Melbourne, the University of Melbourne. Oh, cool. And then uh, after that, I had a couple of years in Tokyo. I taught in a a university, Sophia University in Tokyo, and then, yeah, moved back to Wellington 2010, 2011. Wow. That's quite the adventure. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, fun and interesting. I think the the chance, I mean, if the theme of, of your show is thinking about identity, it's a question perhaps that... Um, if you're if you're from a majority or a dominating culture, you don't really have to think about it until you're displaced into a different setting. Right. You know? Yeah. So a question maybe I've thought about more outside of New Zealand maybe than than inside. Yeah. So that when you were staying in in Melbourne and Tokyo, then would be the the places where you kind of decided what like. Exactly. Yeah. I think in particular Australia, right, because it seems so similar and, you know, shared language and, and very similar histories in terms of settler colonialism and, mm. and right. you know, their connections with Britain and so on. So I'd not really prepared for culture shock moving to Australia and I've got yeah. family there and, and friends that were living there. And so I found myself quite surprised actually after about a year of, of studying in Melbourne to be not just homesick but also experiencing this culture clash and experiencing this realisation that Australian ways of being and ways of doing things are very different, yeah. some better, some worse. Yeah. But, Surely not uh, worse. Well, <laughs> <laughs> just there was there was some negotiation needed to happen that I'd not prepared myself for and that was quite a shock and took a bit of a while to, yeah. to adjust to and think through. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think you had the same sort of thing where you were like kind of expecting more similarities than differences when you moved to your home? Yeah, I I sometimes have these little weird moments where, where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in like a different country. Um, mm. I I was like, nah, it's basically the same as Australia. You did have an opportunity to become a part of Australia, which y'all turned down. Um, so it's base. I don't know the history of that actually. Yeah, um, when we federated, <laughs> um, you decided not to join, which is sad. But yeah, mm. I've just like a few little weird. Um, I asked someone what batch was short for um, the other day because they were talking about going down to their batch. Mm. And I was like, oh, like bachelor pad? And they were like, 
no, batch is just batch, you know, just batch. And I was like, you're just saying the word yeah. <laughs> over again. Yeah, I think the, the, the linguistic differences is, is, is something that everyone points to, you know, um, because there was one really, like at my school, I was the New Zealander and then my friend was the Australian and we were kind of grouped together. It's all basically the same thing. But we, whenever we went back home, we'd kind of come back and compare, oh, what do you guys call this? And what do you, you know, mm. you know it is that sort of same but different kind mm. of feel. Yeah. And then going to Tokyo, did you find that even like, whoa, this is even more different? Or was it easier to be not like able to define yourself on your own terms because you're not surrounded by a similar majority? Well, it was, it was exhausting in all sorts oh, yeah. of really stimulating and interesting ways, being in a country where we're not a native speaker of the language and mm. we're learning the language, you know, and encountering a society that was ordered on quite different ways, had different assumptions, you know, wasn't coming out of a of a Christian tradition, you know, wasn't marked by pens of settler colonialism like New Zealanders. And so, you know, finding your bearings there. I think also though there's ways in which Japan as a country has really been formed over the last 70 years by the legacy of American occupation, mm. the Cold War. Uh, the the place of Japan in U.S. alliances and elsewhere that means, um, you know, there's certain privileges or assumptions that come with with whiteness, yeah, with, with English speaking and being yeah. associated with with those sorts of ways of being in the world that mean it's actually a city where, unfortunately, you know, if you were one to choose to, you could you could not actually engage. You could get by by maintaining a kind of Anglo-American. Right. Identity and association. Yeah. I, I totally get that. It's the mm. same in Singapore. Mm. It, you know, Singapore, we had the same sort of benefit as a, you know, white person. Um, I had friends at other schools who would never go into hawker centers and eat local food, whereas that's something that uh, me and my friends would always do is just go to the local place and get some, you know, chicken rice or whatever. And they would absolutely not and stick with the restaurants and stuff. And that felt, that felt so strange, not engaging with the place that you were living in. You can just get by without making the effort and stuff. And that's just a weird privileged point of view, I think. Yeah. Something here also isn't there about the English language where even if we talk about these different identities in Australia, New Zealand, United States, English as a kind of language that imagines itself as a global language positions mm-hmm. you in a certain way. You know, mm. there's, there's all sorts of, you know, for most of the peoples of the world, learning another language or realising that your own culture is different to other people's cultures or having to navigate a space, these are very normal everyday things. And yet uh, the ways in which growing up as a native speaker of English can allow you to kind of fantasize that that's a universal, you know, mm-hmm. what isn't in English doesn't exist or, you know, that mm. things that aren't in English ought to be translated into your experience. Yeah. I think that can be very limiting yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and can prevent people seeing a perspective that they're coming from. Yeah. For sure. It's a bit um, less kind of intellectual, but I've been watching Eurovision mm-hmm. um, and I always get very excited when they don't sing in English because I'm like, oh, look, you're actually singing in your European language. But, you know, they all speak English. They all do English interviews. Um, and it is, yeah, very interesting the way that we're kind of like, yeah, that's the universal, that's the norm. Um, There's this thing with with tourism. If you're going to, like, say if you're going to, I don't know, Indonesia or something, and you are trying to get to your hotel and you're giving directions in English, you get so frustrated that they don't understand. But really, you're coming to their country and expecting them to speak your language. It's exactly. like, it's, it mm. is this weird sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's true. You know, hearing, did you, I don't know if you guys saw the Oscars a few years back when um, Bong Joon Ho won for Parasite. I think he said, 
that the world of, of entertainment would be opened up if English speakers got over the one inch barrier of subtitles, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 There's this like, and there's also this tradition in, in filmmaking. I'm a film major. Mm. That's kind of my. It shows. My, <laughs> yeah. Shame. Um, <laughs> but there's this kind of thing when like a foreign movie does really well at a film festival, studios buy the rights to remake an, an English speaking version of it, you know? And that's, so strange you know the, the the one that won all the awards is there and it's you know in danish or in mandarin or whatever you know it's, yeah yeah it's kind of it's kind of interesting how the english language is in itself just on a pedestal for so many of us i think yeah yeah and even just on a really simple level something that i you know the longer that i'm back here the more i forget but i try and remind myself just how hard it is to follow someone speaking a language that you're not fluent in and an accent that you're not familiar with and remembering that feeling of just being completely at sea and and, and mm. panicking and feeling like I could never understand anything, trying to make the effort to make yourself understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and the work that there's people who are speakers of other languages, English language learners inside New Zealand, are expected to do all the work to meet mm -hmm. the English language speaker. You know, yeah. to do all the work to yeah. to be taking part in the conversation or comprehending what's going on, and and actually, I think all of us could do a bit more to to meet each other halfway there. Yeah, yeah. to help out. It's really interesting because I think um, even more broadly, like it is, um, we've kind of noticed that it is generally kind of put on people in the minority to make the effort to kind of like get to um, the majority kind of mm -hmm. status. I think. Um, Oh, I was. T uh, I've been doing a lot of treaty research recently, um, and looking at the um, claims and settlements process and the way that kind of the system operates. Right, the crown does not have to justify who it is or what right it has to be there, but you know, um, claimants have to be like, yes, this is my iwi. Here is seven tons of evidence to mm. prove, you know, and they have to justify their space. And often, like, Indigenous historical methods are like, oh, no, 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 like, that's not proper evidence, right? So, like, Whakapapa and, and Waiata are, like, dismissed as not proper evidence. And I'm like, is this an equally balanced, like, yeah, exactly. relationship? Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, one of my least favourite forms of, of news article will be the one that says, shock horror, scientists discover, claim... Indigenous people have been making for thousands of years. It turns out to be true after all. Right. Yeah? And, yeah. and you realise, in fact, there's been this body of evidence and there have been people articulating claims, as you say, that haven't been able to be heard because the people who could be listeners have set themselves up so those claims are not audible. Mm. Yep. And, yeah, I think that's a very interesting example that you bring up. I, I, I ought to do more research into those systems. You know, that's something that I should do since since moving here, actually, yeah. I have a metric pile of readings that I printed out with my staff benefits. So if you <laughs> want them, benefits. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It's the best thing, you get free printing. Yeah, no, I... So yeah, so you teach a lot of English and stuff then. Um, clearly, you're quite <laughs> knowledgeable about the language. Um, do you find that... Um, the like learning the language at, at university level uh, or teaching the language at the university level brings new insights into the way it works in like the like the New Zealand context. Yeah, absolutely. I should make clear I teach uh, literature. So I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. involved in the teaching of English language. Okay, but that's I my, think um, that's my bad. No, no, not at all. I think you do bring up a really good point. Part of the thrill of teaching and part of what makes teaching in a university so much fun is 
you're always learning yourself all the time. And mm-hmm. the words and the structure of sentences and the ways in which words accrue often quite contradictory meanings over time, like you are talking about batch earlier, you know, the mm. way in which seemingly very simple terms can mark out cultural difference, but then also how words over hundreds of years can come to mean the opposite of what they meant mm-hmm. when they were used in different settings. All of that, the kind of the richness and the capacity and the flexibility of language and the flexible ways in which it's been deployed to explore identity, I find just endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And we always joke with students about looking things up in the dictionary, you know, and students always take that as a kind of deficit claim, you know, like you ought to know these things, whereas actually for us, this is one of our primary research sites. And Mm. once you start going into the OED and actually tracking these things, you can't stop, right? It's, It's the thrill of a lifetime. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I um, was teaching myself Middle English for a while um, because I just find um, like the history of the English language endlessly fascinating. So very friendly editor from the ABC put up with a lot of questions. It's like on Twitter, I was like, help me. Why is the F going like here and somewhere else? Mm. Yeah. So the history of the the English language, I guess it it is the history of identity in that way, right? Because it it changes in different places and language itself evolves, you know. Um, I feel like we in Aotearoa are marked by our our use of the language in a certain way, you know, as you say, batch and that sort of stuff. And I feel like the Australian New Zealanders grouped together with G'day and stuff, you know, that that sort of thing is pointed out internationally. Um, I I mean, language is obviously a a huge cultural marker. What do you think its role is in like sort of the the forming of like modern day identity? Yeah. Like Like post-colonial. Yeah, group identity. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we have to say about English in this country and on these Mm -hmm. islands is that it arrived as a colonizing tool, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we're speaking a language that was introduced and used to try unsuccessfully, but used to try and destroy and displace an indigenous language to yeah. Maori. Yeah. And so whenever we think about English and even the fact that the name of the discipline is also the name of a nation. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of tension. I think we have to have in our minds the role that English language and literature has played in a colonizing process. Mm-hmm. Names were used to displace Māori names for places, you know. Mm. Uh, English faith texts were used to try and displace Māori traditions and, and so on. And that that politics and that history needs to be really firmly in our mind. But then simultaneously, of course, English has been a language that has been reshaped and reclaimed and developed and challenged by oppressed peoples, mm-hmm. um, by a people who exist exist outside of what the official record would like to have accorded. And so its dynamism as a language and its its sort of endless capacity to draw on the range of experience, I think is what makes it so fascinating. And you've got these twin traditions with American English, English developed in Britain that exist in parallel for several hundred years and, and go in quite, quite different directions. Mm. But then also the way in which any of us, when we read literary texts, are both reading in a language that's our own, if we're English speakers, but also imagining ourselves, you know, if I'm if I'm to read a North American poet, you know, if I'm to read a novel from Anglophone Canada, uh, or if I'm to read a poetry from Jamaica, it's both in my language and not in my language. Yeah, that yeah. we're carrying out a kind of bilanguaging inside the English language. And I think that's what gives 
global Anglophone literatures so much of their vitality that they're drawing on this this quite rich international palette. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've um, there have been a lot of discussions recently about um, kind of like white appropriation of Aboriginal English, and a lot of angry white people on Twitter have been like. What do you mean Aboriginal English? Like, is it English or is it an Indigenous language? Um, But it's basically like the equivalent of um, AAVE kind of um, terms like mob to refer to a group of people Um, or like the way that the term country is used in um, a really different way kind of in in Indigenous Australian contexts. Mm. I think it is, yeah, even like in the queer community or like in all sorts of, yeah, smaller sub-communities of nations. I think the way that people take and use language and use it as an identity marker is really, really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, and identity markers both to make visible but to keep invisible as well. I mean, the whole history of Polari and and, and gay men's Mm -hmm. speech in Britain yeah, where, you know, you had the development of a, a, a language, you know, in order to make a community able to speak to itself but also to keep its members safe from outsiders who could do harm, you know, and do damage. Yeah. Uh, so those elements, I think also us just remembering that these terms, language, dialect, variation, they have politics as well. There's a hierarchy there. And so often you think in, in Britain, an example that I think of often is the Scots language, right, and, and distinctions between English and Scots. Standard English is not something anyone really speaks anywhere. Yeah. And yet we have, in that term standard, we have this kind of, image of an ideal type yeah. or an yeah. official type that really doesn't actually map the diversity of, of linguistic and literary practices that are going on around us. One of the things I've noticed since um, coming to New Zealand is the way that we, or New Zealanders tend to, or I've noticed that New Zealanders tend to start to use te reo words in, in their language, you know, whānau, whakapapa, or kōrero, kia ora, yeah, you know, that's yeah. I, that's really interesting. Why? What What is that mechan- mechanism there? Like, is that a is that just a way in which the culture has evolved here, or the, the you know the the way that the the language has just kind of become coupled together, or do you think that is a, a modern day kind of reclaiming of of today, or like a rejuvenation of it in that way? Well, I'm bringing a Pākehā perspective, and so I'd, I'd want to start by acknowledging that. And I think within this, there's a whole range of currents, aren't there? There's obviously been extraordinary work in language protection mm-hmm. by Māori for Māori, mm-hmm. and that's had an influence on English as well. You know, what what's going on in Sri Māori has had an influence on a broader uh, sort of soundscape of the language here. Yeah. Uh, we've also got uh, acts of cultural assertion that I think are very positive and powerful where, where Māori have used real Māori, kupu Māori insides English when speaking English, and, and that's very important. Equally, though, as a Pākehā speaker here in this context and this um, sort of very interesting, as you say, very lively kind of political and linguistic space, we can see a bit of a contest of of control, can't we? Where you know the state all of a sudden is becoming interested in these terms. And on one hand, that's very positive, you know, and you think yeah. about um, recognition of language and and bilingual education and and Māori language and schools and so on. That's all very positive. But then also 
uh, I think there are there are Māori scholars and artists and writers who ask legitimate questions around who controls that, who controls that narrative, who, you know, where mm. does this language circulate? Yeah. Um, so it's a sign of a whole range of debates that are going on in the culture. I think. That would be something really interesting to find out more in the future of the show, I think, actually bring on some of those scholars and stuff and talk about that. Well, yeah. you've got at Victoria some of the world experts on that yeah. question and, you know, Vinny Olsen yeah. Reader um, in Takawa Maui, you know, wrote his PhD on the Māori language, in the Māori language, and has been at the centre of a whole lot of really useful and, and fascinating debates on language revival. Karina Kelly, who's a really noted translator, translated like the room be. on the broom <laughs> yeah. into te reo Māori and has, has worked on um, classical texts. You know, she's she's translated a range. There's, there's so many other, Arani Loder and, and history has done yeah. groundbreaking work yeah. uh, on um, what we mean by the literary, you know, and what we mean by writing and, and her work um, – she has a chapter in History of New Zealand Literature, the Cambridge um, History of New Zealand Literature, that basically, you know, anyone who's read it has to rethink the foundational definitions of what counts as a written text. And so, yeah, just at this yeah. university, I think there's some extraordinary scholarship going on. I kind of want to read that book. That sounds mm. fantastic. I'm yeah. taking um, Ardini's um, Māori Historical Methods mm-hmm. paper this trimester is blown my mind yes. yeah, I, yeah. Hear, I hear that from every student that takes it that it's, it's, yeah. a, it's like a life-changing paper yeah it's extraordinary yeah, and yeah i mean because i'm particularly interested in kind of like narratology and historiography and kind of how we can decolonize those spaces um mm. so yeah pretty much the best place to be vic at the moment for oh. like these these conversations yeah the, the the narrative aspect i guess for me also i mean i, I come at this primarily from a literary perspective, just interested mm. in how these texts work. What do they do? You know, how is it that they achieve these effects? But then also, as you point out, as soon as you start thinking about that, you also start thinking about how do texts control our imagination? How do they set up certain mm. ways of thinking? How do they make certain identities imaginable? Yeah. 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 And so very quickly you're in the realm of cultural politics. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. So you you mentioned earlier that you're a the head of the the, the tertiary education union. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. I got it. Um, what's that? What's that um, position like? What's it like at the university and kind of internationally or nationally? <laughs> yeah, internationally might be a bit big for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me misspeaking. But no, no, sorry. That's um, no, okay. <laughs> so what what the role involves is it's really a team approach that the tertiary education union exists to be a voice for staff, yeah. academic and general staff here at Victoria and in tertiary education across the country. Uh, and so there's, we've got about um, 1,200 members mm. here at Vic and we advocate for staff and we think that staff conditions Staff working conditions are really student learning conditions. And so if we can yeah. protect what's best about the institution and be a voice for staff, that's something that will benefit students and benefit the wider community. I'm sure that must that role must be quite tough in now the, the kind of COVID world where, you know, university funding and stuff is quite difficult without international students. And I, I don't know that much about it, but I imagine that the role is quite tough at the moment. I think we're in a period at the moment where the purpose of universities is something that's up for discussion mm-hmm. in this country and globally. And I think for a long time, Universities have been run and have been encouraged to think of themselves as business-like entities. Yeah. Whereas really I think what the COVID experience underlined for so many of us is that these are public institutions. Mm. They're they're publicly funded and they have a role and a vocation to teach, Mm -hmm. to produce research uh, and to serve the broader community. And so 
a lot of talk has gone on in the last year about international students where it's really focused primarily on the financial contribution that comes from the yeah. fees and that doesn't sit comfortably with me as an educator where uh -huh. I think actually, yes, we should think of international students and the contribution they have to make to our community and to this community of learners. But the idea that business calculations are the way that we should be thinking through how we respond to COVID is quite alien, I think, to how me and, and my members right. think about ourselves as, as educators. Yeah, my, my girlfriend's an international student from Austria who studies here. Um, and I know she's been a lot of quite frustrated over the last year. Um, she was very lucky to be, she's very lucky to be in the country at the moment. And she feels for a lot of the international students who aren't. I, I think that's really interesting what you say about it being a public institution. I've, I've felt that way as a student that this, you know, it's clear coming here, coming to Wellington for the first time to New Zealand and seeing, okay, this university, for me, it's a hub, it's a center, but also just the way that it functions in the city. And, and I imagine that's the same at, uh, on a national scale, just what the role it serves is obvious to me in that in that regard it is exactly as you say yeah as a, a place of learning and research and and those sort of fundamental building blocks of, of i don't know i don't want to say society but yeah yeah well i think we should have our outlook towards society yeah there's lots of really important teaching and research that happens outside the university and mm -hmm. i don't want to downplay that but also this is this is a very privileged position to be in you know to have a space set aside for, for learning and, and research and research that isn't dictated to by the needs of business or industry or politics, you know, mm. research that yeah. can be done for its own sake and often unpopular and, and difficult and controversial topics. I think that's really vital. Uh, and that's something that, again, COVID perhaps prompted some of us to stop and reflect and think, you know, is the business language the useful language for what we're doing? Is this move towards seeing students as customers Mm. really a helpful way or yeah. is it time to stop to take stock and really think well what's happened to the community of learners what's ha what happened once lockdown began that that drew out for us what's so important about being together learning together the the professional relationship mm. of students and teachers involved in kind of shared production of knowledge yeah. so i think lots of those big questions have actually informed some of the um more immediate seeming scraps about funding and cuts and so on that have gone on over the last 12 months. Yeah. For sure. I think, um, I mean, a lot of the time when I talk to students, they're like so appreciative of the kind of pastoral support of um, lecturers and other kind of academic staff. Um, and a lot of people, you know, say if I didn't have to have a job and I didn't have to pay uni fees, like I just want to be here forever, kind of like <laughs> learning yeah. and listening and kind of producing ideas and sharing ideas um yeah I've always kind of had the kind of mystical idea of universities yeah. you know sitting up in dorm rooms sipping coffee and talking about like philosophers yeah. that vibe <laughs> um and I was I think yeah quite shocked when I was like oh yeah like have to pay pay money and mm. um work so that I can mm. keep learning um mm. but yeah it is the great thing I feel about university is that we learn so much in our lectures, but also there's this whole, as you say, community of learning. Like mm -hmm. we get to do things like this where mm -hmm. we, we talk to people and we learn so much, you know, through through these discussions and stuff. And there are other ways, other ways we can pursue our interests. And yeah, it's just clear to me that university is kind of essential. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's so much. We were talking to our guest last week, um, Ronia, about this and 
kind of how university is very much a space where we can carve out communities if we mm-hmm. don't feel that we belong more widely. Um, and then she was like, yeah, it's wonderful if you can pay to have that privilege. Um, yeah. Which yeah. is really tricky looking at kind of the customer um, business aspect. Yeah. We have mature age students in my creative writing class who are like, yeah, I didn't pay to go to uni. Mm. And we're all like, well. Well, it can be like that again. I mean, I think there's, a, again, a broader political discussion to be had. Yeah. And, you know, there were periods, long post-war period of New Zealand of expansion of the university system where there weren't fees of the kind there are now. Uh, and there was an expectation that one of the ways in which these things were funded was through high taxes mm-hmm. on wealthier people. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's still... An argument that that holds absolutely for sure. So the the sort of the individualist approach that says, "Well, what's in it for me?" Mm. as the customer misses that whole wider social question. So I think, yeah, absolutely, students have a lot of room to mobilise around questions of debt and fees and and um, yeah, the whole approach to funding. And that's the question I think will get picked up yeah. in the years to come. Yeah. Yeah. The- Oh, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, like it breaks my heart when I, I've got a few residents, because um, I'm an RA mm. at a um, yeah, university hall, um, when they say, you know, I really wanted to study English literature, but um, I'm only minoring in it. I'm majoring in economics so that I can get a job. Um, and the way that, yeah, degrees have also become very commodified and like mm-hmm. you just need the thing to do the next thing. It's a critique of capitalism in there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we kind of tend to frequently have those here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. As the head of the union, do you speak to students a lot about this sort of thing? Or do you think it's more talking to staff in that, in that sort of regard? Well, we talk regularly with VUSA, the, yeah. the Students Association, and, and we have a very good working relationship with VUSA. Yeah. Uh, my, my primary role... As, as the branch president is to talk to staff and, and mm-hmm. to be a voice for staff. But obviously we're all part of this broader community and so talking and listening to students is a really important part of that. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean we always agree. Like there's sometimes yeah. different views and that's fine. Mm. And I think having those debates out in the open is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, we've tried to really build alliances with FUSA um, over the last year and a half in particular. And I think that's been something that's been a source of strength for both unions both associations yeah that's I, I can totally see why you know if you're advocating for a better university i feel like a two-pronged approach kind of makes a lot of sense in that regard oh, yeah yeah. Oh. yeah also very much kind of like more grassroots more, less you know not to say any names but you know less grant kind of like down and more top like, down yeah yes. <laughs> we can Sorry, top down <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah because that's what students find valuable right it's that community um and kind of the the middle middle management as kind of people refer to it of like but not the higher powers i think people feel very alienated from well the look upper at, echelons of I, the university structure i think there is a real sense that that we can actually change things i don't know if you guys saw but there was that protest a few weeks ago about um sexual violence and stuff back yeah. in the, down in the city. And then the council this week passed, uh, I think, $10 million or something for, for um, you know, improving this sort of thing. There's a real yeah. sense of, of momentum, I think, that it's picking up with things like the rent strike last year and a few, uh, you know, 
things like that, yeah, that yeah. actually there is a sense that we can change things as, as students. And I think that's valuable to my sense of identity. The idea that one of the things I was so excited about moving here is, oh my goodness, I get to vote. Mm. <laughs> you know, I've never been in a country Flex. where, oh, well, yeah, I've never been in a country where my political voice has ever mattered. Mm. And so that was really interesting, especially coming in from Singapore, which is like no politics, mm. <laughs> you know, they, they really clamp down on that. Um, the sense that we can change things. And I wonder if that's the same, do you feel a little bit of that momentum post COVID? Like, okay, this is a moment, this is a tipping point where we can actually change things. Yeah, I do. I think as coming from a sort of different generation, looking in, looking from the outside in as, as someone older, I'm also really struck by the political urgency that seems to characterize students at the moment mm -hmm. because of this existential threat that climate change represents. Yeah. You know, the entire way in which society is organized currently and all of the assumptions that are made around what matters are confiscating the future of people in their 20s currently. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't need to tell both of you this, you know it better than I do. <laughs> but <laughs> the way in which what until quite recently seemed like an issue for the future is now something that a whole lot of students and classes and elsewhere are saying, well, that future doesn't really feel like it's going to happen. And these things are happening now. You know, these possibilities are being stolen from me now. And I feel like that is a kind of baseline across so many other political mm -hmm. conversations that are happening at the moment around housing or the voting age and yeah. equality and the environment is just the sense that actually the world's in a terrible, terrible mess. And so if we go by the logic of common sense and what's currently acceptable, the catastrophic consequences of that for younger people. Yeah give it an intensity uh, that I think drives yeah. really usefully a whole lot of the, the really fraught conversations that are happening at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, people talk a lot. They're like, oh, wow, like your generation has so much like energy for <laughs> politics and activism and stuff. And I'm like, it's not necessarily like positive. It's frantic, angry energy mm. a lot of the time. Fearful, I think. Yeah, yeah. very fucking scared yeah. but <laughs> i think the fuck. <laughs> well appropriate in this context maybe. I mean, that's, that's essential yeah because there's something also i mean like like a whole lot of people i've been really deeply inspired by the climate strikes and mm -hmm. have gone and been amazed by the organization and, and the commitment but i've also been sometimes frustrated by what I see is quite a patronising response from politicians that are mm -hmm. oh, so great, so wonderful young people are raising yeah. their voice. Well, I've got no particular interest in young people raising their voice as young people. I've got an interest in the demands that are being raised, yeah. the, the political issues that are being raised. And so often there, the great progress allegedly that's being made on, on climate change, there's such a disjuncture between the urgent transformation that's required. And exactly. Talk about like, oh, our fleet of electric cars is going to move to X or Y, you know? Don't um, even. <laughs> yeah. That really gets yeah. me. Yeah. No, it's it's like this, this this almost kind of spin spin the urgency away. It's, oh, so inspiring or mm. whatever, you know, just kind mm. of like compartmentalize it and put it away and rush out our new electric cars. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, don't put the Greta Thunberg quote on like a Hallmark card. Like, it's not inspirational for the sake of being inspirational. It's like, can you please change things now-ish? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that that anger and contempt that she's been prepared to show mm. in certain settings has been very kind of carefully edited out of mm -hmm. the, you know, there's certain attempts obviously to co-opt and to absorb that anger and the, the stridency that, that's driving, or seems to me as an outsider to be driving 
the climate strikes, mm-hmm. and that's that's a risk. The the word inspiration has behind it a kind of um, yeah assimilative drive, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that we're going to have to cut it short here, but we've got someone coming in to record right after us. But thank you so much, Dougal. This well, was thank you for having me. Fantastic. Yeah. I really, really loved your insights on the language and then your perspective as uh, the head of the union. Uh, good luck with all the union stuff and. Um, well, congratulations for finishing teaching this try. Hey. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, yeah. All the best for your assignments to come. And yeah, thank you for having me as a guest. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right. Well, yeah. Anything else you want to say? Never. All right. All right. Well, it ended here. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.